Hello, citizens of the People's Game. Welcome to the podcast in season 2020. We're not sure how much footy we are actually going to get this year, so we're going to get a little bit creative with our segments. And joining me to take you through the journey of whatever this year will be is none other than Gordon Hunter-Merrick. Gordon, welcome. Thanks very much, JB. And we are practicing our extreme social distancing. The recommended distance was 1.5 metres. I think we've clocked about 15 k's difference between us today. So we are doing our part. Everyone should do theirs as well. I think it's our vir- first virtual... Can you virtually report, record a pod? I mean, our first online pod recording. Yeah, we've through, reached the future. Um, everyone's favourite bit of technology. Well, shares in Zoom are going boom, and this is why. Yes. Because um, people like us are using it to uh, record podcasts where previously we would have just you know, sat on a couch and yarned. But mm. these are the times we live in. So we're going to do a couple of different and reoccurring segments through the year. The first one is the Unwatchables, which is uh, us reviewing an old-time game, an old-time classic, uh, before or from before the TV era. Um, Clearly, that is going to be followed by the Rewatchables, which is a televised game. Um, We're going to try and correspond the rounds, although to start off, uh, I have made a, a monumental and quite typical of me fuck up uh, in selecting a round one match for our round two episode, but we're going to forgive my blushes on that. So the unwatchables for round two is actually a round one game from 1900 between St Kilda and Melbourne at the Junction Oval. Now, this game is notable purely because it was St Kilda's first VFL win after three years in the competition. So they're an interesting um, case early on. There's a lot of explanations online for why St Kilda were included in the competition. One of them was their proximity to the city. The second one, which I think is incorrect but gets a big run on Reddit, is that the Junction Oval is very picturesque, which is strange because it's not that pretty. Um, But they basically went 1897, 1898 and 1899 without a win. And if you kind of read the papers from that time, they were only ever likely to beat Carlton, which means it's an absolute surprise that they knocked off Melbourne. They did it in truly ridiculous fashion. It's one of only three results in VFL-AFL history decided by a protest. So after the three-quarter time siren, Melbourne's captain kicked an erroneous behind, as it was described in the paper, which was subsequently scrubbed off at um, VFL committee on Thursday night. They rewarded the win. I don't know if they even got to celebrate it um, because obviously it being awarded four days after the game kind of would have stifled that. So there are a lot of unknown questions. I don't know if they sung the song. I just, I don't know. So I've got a couple of questions to do with that game first. So obviously they protested after the result and then there's no TV footage because it was 1900. They didn't even have a siren loud enough for the umpire to hear it. You're the Melbourne delegate that get asked to go to the tribunal for the protest. Do you just roll with it like the Melbourne people did and say, yeah, yeah, it was kicked after the siren, we'll cop the loss? Or do you just plead ignorance and take the points? I guess the other question is, and this is kind of, in a lot of this, so a lot of the reports about St Kilda were that they were unfit, they didn't take football very seriously at all. Um, And I kind of wonder in 1900 whether, like this is three years of the competition, for the start of the fourth season. So how seriously at this point, like, it's not like the media where Romo's like, oh no, if I was Melbourne, I'd just go in and sit there and take the four points. Like, was anyone actually taking it 
that seriously or were they more concerned about being like good blokes, good people and being cordial in that era? Well, I could be speculating and... The whole thing made not much sense at all. And so the reason why I set you up with that question is that Melbourne won the premiership that year, but they finished sixth out of eight teams. <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> and so yeah. what, what happened in, in the first three seasons of the year is they used this system where you play everyone twice, so 14 games, and then you got split into sections, first, third, fifth, and seventh are in section A, second, fourth, sixth, and eighth are in section B. So finishing second means you get the worst ranked teams. So that's actually a benefit to finish second. Then you play each other once in those sections. And then there's this super complicated final system where, so whoever won, whoever finished top of the ladder in the regular season of 14 games is declared the minor premier. Then you play the sectionals, you get a champion of uh, section A, champion of section B. They play off in the sectional game. Now, if the minor premier is also the winner of that sectional game, they win the grand final. If the minor premier loses that game, then they play the game again as like a challenge game. Mm. If the minor premier wasn't in that game, then the winner of the sectional game plays the minor premier, but only if they got more than eight points in the sectional games. And if the minor premier didn't win more than two games in the sectionals, then the winner of the sectional game is the, is the major premier. And I thought the final five was complicated. And so really, the reason why Melbourne just lets St Kilda have the points is because it didn't matter where they finished. If you won three games in the sectionals and then won the next game, you most likely play in the grand final. So eighteen ninety seven, they did it. It was minor premier because it was Essendon. Yeah, and then from there they created finals. Yeah, and the but final this, is, this is why. Yeah, and this is why in AFL they always we're one of the only sports that refers to a grand final mm. as opposed to a final because the final used to be a match and then the minor premier still had the right to challenge, yes. which would then be the grand, the final, grand final, which yes. is a lot of people don't, because now actually in football, we don't really have a grand final. We just have a final, mm. but we still kind of refer to, I guess, go to final. that. Yeah. The traditional lingo. So yeah, you're right. I mean, if that's probably why when they all went to the tribunal and all sat there, Melbourne probably went, Oh, you haven't won a game in three years. We might as well give you one. Yeah. Um, and so they did. The mm. most stellar part of this is, being so diabolical, they had a guy called Ted Hall who I've spent far too much time chasing down and researching who missed this game. He played all of the first three seasons, virtually played every game, and then quit at the start of 1900 to umpire. So he was umpiring Geelong and Collingwood um, uh, in round two, I think, not actually in round one, but he stopped playing to umpire, um, became, I think, the second person to do that in the VFL AFL history. Um, he sucked at umpiring, so he came back to playing at round five, but missed the first win and consequently he ended up playing 73 games for one win in his VFL AFL career, largely because he missed this game. Mm. And so if he hadn't missed this game, he would have an infinitely better win loss percentage that would put him on a parallel with all the other St Kilda players. But because he missed this game, he is outright the worst by 
a decent margin. It's quite, it's quite ridiculous. But I guess the other thing when you try and kind of research a lot of this stuff is that the information is so scant. Like if you look on um, footy tables, like they don't even have the, the full 22 or 20 or whatever it was for both sides on that particular um, day. So there's a lot of um, difficulty in actually piecing together kind of exact passages of events. It's pretty... Um, pretty remarkable and you do end up wasting an enormous amount of time on um, Trove and various other sources if you want to track any of it down. So forging onwards and upwards to a more modern era, to the television era and going back to, well, one of the worst nights of my life to be completely frank about it, um, our round two game for the first edition of the Rewatchables is none other than Richmond and Collingwood in 2016, known affectionately by all and sundry as the Grundy game. So my first question to you, Gordo, about this one, and there's a whole lot of backlog that we've dug up here, is where were you? What were you actually I was doing in, on the night of this? I was in the MCC members with our good friend, Jacob Jusen. Uh, <laughs> and we were probably about eight to 11 rows back from the boundary. Uh, from the pocket where the funnel goal was kicked. I have obviously lots of memories of the game, but no actual memory of where I was when I saw it, which is incredibly strange. Based on purely when it was played, I must have been in the UK. So I've mm. probably watched this as a Friday night game early on a Friday morning alone, which is depressing in itself. But at the same time, it got no better. There were so many things I couldn't believe about this match watching it. The first one was just how shit house it was. This match was borderline unwatchable for the first half, if not the first, like, five eights. You look at the inside 50 count, they couldn't score goals from anything. So they had a, an overall goal percentage rate of 13% success from inside 50s, both teams, for the first half. <laughs> it was diabolical. And I cannot even fathom how these two teams would play in the next three grand finals after that season. Well, that's probably the big kind of a bit of a what next, but my, that was my first initial outtake was that it was three, eight plays, three, three at halftime. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn McFarlane in the Herald Sun wrote that for three quarters, this, na- this match was not much better than a poorly delivered April Fool's Day joke littered with errors and errant kicking, with each side seemingly trying to outdo the other in terms of mistakes, which pretty much sums it up because I was trying to think of who on that field has kind of, hasn't dramatically improved their football since that night. And the only answer I could come up with was Scott Pendlebury. Pretty much every other player has elevated, well, sorry, most of the other players, so I'm talking like the Taylor Adams, the Trelaws, um, Cochin, Martin, um, etc. All of those players have elevated. I think Pendlebury's the only one that was at the same level then as he is now, more or less. I don't know how that sits with your watching of it. No, I very much agree with that. Pendlebury was basically the only A-grade, the A-plus elite talent on the field that evening that like, was a regular A-grade talent. Arguably for Solo, who was obviously best on that day, and then maybe Brody Grundy. So strangely, Collingwood had the three best players on that field, but Richmond definitely should have won that game. That's, I guess you can't really talk about this game without talking about how Richmond lost it. So they, watching this back, 
there's that kind of moment with like five minutes to go and I'm kind of sitting there and having kind of vague memories of it being a disaster. But then I'm kind of going, well, that's 17 points up here with six minutes to play. So I actually, I wrote this down. So the Tigers are three goals up at the start of time on and they're, they're not within a kick, the Magpies, until the 29-minute mark of the game when Fasolo kicks his sixth goal. So there's like, it's kind of one of those periods where they, they need two goals in three minutes to win the game and kind of somehow manage to do it. And there are so many moments with Richmond's match management where you're just like, how do you not just chip the ball around for two minutes straight? And I mean, if they get this to a half-forward flank, they probably don't lose if they can lock it down. So there's kind of the, the climax of this is, I guess, the, the most memorable phase of the game. Because other than how it ended and it being kind of very poetic almost or playing on the old rivalry, there probably wasn't, if you're a neutral, like I reckon you'd struggle to get through this. Well, the best way to sum this game up is that all of its great moments in inverted commas are due to mistakes. 7.20 to go, Dustin Martin tries to kick a snap and kicks it on the outside of his boot, drifts off from behind. Marley Williams kicks it out as a regular kick out, turns it over. Sean Grigg gets the kick, kicks it out on the full. Marley Williams has to kick in from the out of bounds, turns it over. Hawley then just throws on the boot from outside 50. It goes over the pack that has Ty Vickery and Jack Rewalt in him. They're both horrendously uh, positioned. The ball goes to the back of the pack. There's no one at the back. The ball then takes a weird bounce. Tyrone is in a one-on-one with Frost, which both of them lose, but Frost gets the ball. Frost then fumbles the ball and then gives it to Jack, basically. Jack walks into an open goal. And then Richmond are then like 18 points up with like six minutes to go. And then the next two moments of, of course, when for some reason, the, the, the biggest takeout for this for mine is how un-Richmond, how unmodern Richmond-like this game Richmond is in. Or AKA, how very Richmond-like it is. This is like the Richmond I've forgotten about. When watching this game and re-watching that ending three or four times, it reminded me that I used to go to Richmond games thinking, how will this team embarrass me so that I get teased about it on Monday morning when I go to work? Because that's what, that's what they did. They, they, they had an unlosable game and they lost it. Alex Rance, Mr. Best Defender of All Time, has the ball and goes, no, it's a really good option. Just kicking it high and slow and a cross goal to a one-on-one. But then, of course, Fasolo, who's on absolute fire, creates a contest out of that situation. And then, and then James Aish, who had not had a kick all night, he had nine handballs. His only kick for the night was a goal that kept them in the game. That was like a dribbly, like he was not in the right position. He was just like running about like a headless chook. Drifts into the contest. Fasolo taps it out of, out of uh, I think it might have been Asprey's hands or something like that. And then he just goes, oh, oh, I can't handball this one. I better kick it into the bloody goal. So the only person who had it, only, team, only two players that had decent games that day would have been Pendles and Fasolo. And Fasolo absolutely dominated. And I'm so sad because I reckon Fasolo is my all-time favourite magpie. I remember sitting there that night and it was strange because I have a memory of dad talking about like, you know, dad used to always say that like whoever it was like Boomer Harvey or like Gary Ablett, it's like, oh, they just always play so well against us. But then he used to also say that about Alex Vasolo. So I'm kind of, again, I need to do a deep dive on how well Vasolo actually played against Richard because I think dad was just pissed off. But he had like, he kicked six straight from six marks and 14 disposals. Mm. So that's probably, 
like your, your lead performer for the night. Yeah, was was for Solar. He was he was pretty unbelievable, but also like took took his chances because on another night he could kick three three. And oh, we're not talking about Alex Solo. Do you know what I mean? Talking about kicking, every year we have like an AFL's dying because of something issue, and it's usually like you know congestion or mm. low scoring. Well, remember how in 2016 it was goal kicking? Or coronavirus, where it's actually dying. But that's a, that's a, don't, you can't get serious on this anymore, mate. Come on. Let's get a bit lighthearted. But yeah, in 2016, Sorry. it was, it was goal kicking. Remember how goal kicking was going to destroy the game? Yeah. And then for Solos, dobbed six straight. Yeah. But also, Travis Cloak kicked it's one straight. Three. Well, that was one of the strangest things was like, just watching Travis Cloak not be able to kick, yeah. like, at all. And this is the era where he was putting headphones in and listening to crowd noise at training. You'd have um, no fear. You'd have no fear. Like, he would take the clunk from 45 out directly in front. He has a big raking kick. And you're like, he's missing this. No stress. But everyone else had the same feeling when Sean Hampson or Tyrone Vickery or literally any other player that wasn't Jaden Short tried to have a shot at goal that night as well. I think my favourite bit of goal kicking from the night, and I can't remember when it was, but it was Tyrone Vickery and he marked like between the point post and the goal post. So then he's like got the guy on the mark, like probably like three or four metres out and he's on like a fairly acute angle. And it's one of those ones where like, I reckon 85% of semi-coordinated people would just run around and kick a left foot snap and like dob it through. Mm. And so, but Tyrone decides he's going to kick a drop punt from this angle. And he walks in like, he, he doesn't get quicker than your grandma on a bloody walking frame. Like he's literally going at a snail's pace as he strolls in. And like as a Richmond supporter, I think it was quite a key point in the game because I remember sitting there watching on the replay like, there's no way he kicks this. Like, this is the last thing I want to be relying on. He kind of stutters and he stutters and he stutters. And then he, like, gets slower as he goes to kick it and then manages to slot it. And it's the most, like... And then he looks surprised. It's probably, like, Tyrone Vickery summed up in one, like, 30-second passage of goal kicking. It was unbelievable. What are your thoughts on Tyrone Vickery as an avid Richmond fan? So... The weirdest thing about now watching Richmond and having a forward line that's largely Jack Rewalt, Tom Lynch and Dustin Martin, who are all superstars, was watching Richmond with Jack Rewalt not playing that well, kind of pre-17, still a little bit selfish and whiny Jack Rewalt. Um, Tyrone Vickery and Ben Griffiths. And like... That's right. The thing Trojans, that I, Trojans kind of college like, punter, Ben Griffiths. Like... With his helmet, his skull cap, like mm. that's weird. But then watching that, but then the most remarkable thing about this is like, if you look at the three years previous, Richmond finished 15 7 um, in 13, finished eighth in 14. I don't know where the win loss was. And they finished 15 7 in 2015 with, with that forward line. Like they should have made the four in 16, in 15, sorry, because there was. That game against Fremantle where Bashahuli took the kick out directly up the guts with like 
12 seconds to go at Domain Stadium. It was the first, um, the first edition of um, David Mundy breaking my heart in life. So, so that was like, like, what, like how? And everything about Tyrone just looks wrong. Like this is probably a little bit brutal because compared to the average person, he's a very, very good footballer. But he just didn't look capable of coordinated movement. And I'm really sorry. This is, I feel quite mean right now. Mm. I feel like I'm a mean-spirited person. But, like, he, he looks like a baby giraffe on roller skates with three legs. Like, yeah, I don't know. See, I was always very optimistic about Tyrone. And then when he got traded to Hawthorne, I was always that person that said, like, he's going to just dominate Hawthorne. Clark is going to fix him up. He's going to, like, just kick massive bags. He's going to regret getting rid of him. And I was making ridiculous things like he's going to kick 60 goals. I'll bet you have a slab on it, blah, blah, blah. He clearly didn't. But like, I always just thought it was something about him. But I suppose he was like our version of Travis Cloak. Like on his day, he could be very, very good. Cloak's a lot better than Tyrone. Find, yeah, that's, you see, that's a, I just, the thing that I think, so I'm going a little bit away from victory here, but like Travis Cloak's a Collingwood premiership player. So like he has to have a level of esteem or I think he deserves a level of esteem that like the last three years of his career just at Collingwood just cancelled. Yeah, but... Like when he went through the goalkeeping woes. Yeah, yeah. And he was dominant. He was was as good as Tom Hawkins. Like I feel really sorry for Travis Cloak. I can't believe I'm saying that because he just got absolutely maligned for yonks, then moved to the Bulldogs for a season after they won the flag when they just decided to sput it up and it was just like, okay, like, yeah. I don't know. The last four years of his career, I just just wish he'd... I don't wish he'd quit while he was ahead because he clearly still had good footy in him, but he just got the yips and then it just... Everyone just remembers the yip. Well, um, I was going to segue because the context of this game, like, leading in and the kind of the, the competing narratives of, like, the two big Melbourne clubs. So the previous year, like I've already mentioned, Richmond finished fifth, the Pies finished 12th. Neil Barnes still at Collingwood, which is kind of a little bit like, oh, okay, I forgot that. Um, but Buckley has basically watched Collingwood's win-loss slide every season. And Hardwick until this point has gone in the opposite direction. So, like, if you just took the result on this night, you could kind of leave with a feeling that, oh, okay, like, Buckley's just one up Hardwick and their fortunes are going to change. But what quickly becomes apparent is that that's not the case. Like, and the other thing that really stands out coming into this when you say it's a terrible game, it's like, what were you expecting given Sydney beat the Pies by 80 points in round one. And Richmond beat Carlton, who were the reigning Wooden Spooners, by nine points. It's kind of like, if you expected this to be kind of the dawn for Collingwood, you were wrong. But in the same... Like, the only other thing with this with Richmond is I really would be interested to know in retrospect how their season pans out if they win this, because this pretty much broke them, I reckon. Mm. And it also broke them... In, a, in an interesting way within that match itself. And so I think this match is actually a very good preamble to their rise in the next three seasons for both these clubs. Because they both played very, like, dour, slow, chippity-chip football for the first two quarters. And then they went, nah, let's try and turn on, let's try and score, let's try and get the ball down the ground as quickly as possible, let's try and lock it in, let's apply some pressure, all that good stuff that Richmond especially being renowned for. And then it's only when they go back to trying to be this slow, chippity-chip football club again that they stuff it up in the last two minutes. And so it was very interesting to see that I think 
it'd be interesting to talk to Hardwick and see if that, if you know, that game was one of those games he went, oh, if we had just backed in this new style or backed in this more aggressive style for longer, we would have won. I kind of agree. But the other thing that I, and I, we've kind of touched on this, so like when you watch both teams, you realise how many good players were just playing bad football, mm. which kind of corresponds to, like clearly, and clearly the system is a part of that and wasn't enabling them to play well and maximising strengths. But, like, when I look at some of the players who were in that, like, so Taylor Hunt was still playing for Richmond. Connor Menergy was still playing for Richmond. Um, Sam Lloyd, who I actually really rate, was still playing for Richmond. There's still kind of a lot of water to go under the bridge in terms of the evolution of the two playing groups. But I, I think you're right. Like, I think this was a good exemplar of why kind of the Richmond style of the previous three years that hadn't succeeded in finals... Um, had to be shifted. Collingwood are probably even further back because this is really a false goal because 17 for them goes really badly as well. So they don't really get up or go through any sort of evolution until 2018 and probably even that's generous. Like it's really the second half of 2018 where they actually finally kind of get their collective shit together. So I was going to ask you the same segue as you basically asked me about the progression of these two clubs. And here is my hypothetical number one. If Collingwood loses that game, does Bucks get the sack in 2016? No. No. Because he had a contract at the end of the year, so they wouldn't have jumped on him at that point. And when you look at where they finished... It's the difference between them finishing 12 and 12th and 13th. So it's, and like the other thing with this is we actually beat them in the second half of the season in like round 20 anyway. Mm. So I don't think in terms of that decision, it makes a huge difference to the Bucks' tenure. So I've got a couple of more questions around kind of like development narrative arcs for a question or a lack of a better term. But number one, is did this game rewatching it give you the angle that you can use to argue that Alex Rance was overrated? First thing I found weird was actually watching Alex Rance play football. Because <laughs> prior to this, well, no. So there was like round one last year, but then he did, that was kind of a dull game anyway. And then there was the 2018 prelim, which ruined Rance for a lot of people anyway. And then this, so like the last three games of Alex Rand's football I've watched, he was kind of sucky in all of them. Um, so I think, but I think it does because the only thing I would say is like, if you're talking about development of system, Rance was always a system reliant player. And in this game, the system wasn't quite right and wasn't quite ready and Rance sucked. Hmm. And I think that's pretty much his career. Like if the system's up and running, Rance is great. And if the system's not up and running, like he is, he's not he's not the system, but he he thrives within something that's working, and it's not working, then he's not great. And then the marks of like the greatest players that we have that high on that on that pedestal, they make good decisions under pressure. They are great in clutch moments. 
they yeah they stand up and they they carry their team and he did none of those things in this game if anything he made terrible decisions on the pressure he had poor skill execution a lot of the time he got towed up by like smaller players playing on them one on one it was like i can understand rewatching this game why people go don't talk to me about os rants he's overrated interestingly another player they did that for who's also a richmond player was Hodgson. And I didn't like Trent Cotchum watching this game. He didn't give me vibes. I was like, oh, that's our captain. That's our, that's our premiership captain. I was like, oh, this guy's a bit of a knob. Just watching him in, in this particular game. Pre-evolution Cotchum. Mm. So that's where like, there is like Richmond post-2016 and Richmond pre-2016 and almost like Richmond just, this is kind of the 2016 night that people refer to because Cotchum had, I've got the number. So he had- 38 touches, yeah. Uh, 30, yeah, 38. But like, I reckon I remember two kind of late in the game or kind of in the second half of the game that were contested. And then everything else was like a the little handball behind off half possession. Back, yeah, yeah. Mm. And it, you do actually, at the time, I thought a lot of the criticism of him was too harsh. But then you kind of look at it now and you're like, it almost looks like you're getting possession. So people think you're good. So people think you deserve to be captain. It's kind of like a really cynical kind of reading of his of his game because that like I didn't expect it to be so profound and so noticeable maybe it's because I was looking for it because I know that's kind of his his arc or story but but yeah that really really kind of struck me more than I thought it would and even like looked like a bit of a winger at various stages mm, he did he looked like a bit of a winger he looked pretty soft to use a poor you know cliched football term but yeah, it was just a very odd night because now he's like this revered captain, this revered leader, this this revered Richmond man. And on this very small sample size of one game from 2016, he looked like none of those things. My final question to you, because you are obviously the coach of this podcast, is that how frustrated were you watching that final play? So I had a few questions because... I couldn't work out why Vlosten handballed. There's, there's so much weirdness. There's so much weirdness. But, so Vlosten yeah. could so, have just even... kicked anywhere, a- anywhere, or just run and got tackled and create a stoppage or do anything other than this is what, handball yeah, the like, ball out of bounds. This is, this is like, he's like given off a 35-metre handball. Yes. Like, One of the most clear so deliberate first... players of all time. So when I, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I could never argue. Yeah. That, that had to be, it was the most deliberate, like he's handballed at 40 metres. Mm. Like, and if you work on the, the idea that a handball's more precise than a kick, then, mm. yeah. So, so the first thing is when Vlosten actually gets the ball and there's like less than 30 seconds left and you just think, oh, surely he just burns it out of defence here and, kicks a torp to the wing or kicks a drop punt to the wing, the ball stays in. Even if Collingwood get it, they've got to shift it again and get, get a mark. Like, I don't think they do that. So, so, yeah, why did he handball? If he handballed, why did he handball out of bounds? Why did he just keep running and kick it? Um, yeah, I, the, the fact that the ball went out of bounds makes no sense at all. Like, it's, that is... Yeah, you could, you could just... Like, that's the one thing you don't want to happen because there's no one on that side of the ground. Like it can, like it's, it can't be anything other than deliberate, particularly in those circumstances. Because, like, like the umpire is obviously going to be more conned onto it with 
20 seconds to go because the motivation to put it out of bounds deliberately is even higher. Mm. The fact that he only just got the ball outside of the 50-meter arc is the bit that, like, where, where Moore is kicking from is, like, it's not, it's probably 10 meters or five meters too far for him to have a shot himself. Mm. And that's the worst part. So, obviously, the handball out of bounds, terrible. Terrible mistake under pressure. Very modern-day un-Richmond-like. But then, Darcy Moore can't make the distance. Everyone knows he can't make the distance. So it's going to be a ball to the hot spot and then chaos going to ensue and surely you just punch it through. But no, why not? Because we go up, Richmond goes up in a three-on-one versus Scott Pendlebury. So even the magpies are confused because Brody Grundy is crumbing the pack as the tallest person in the 50. So they don't know what's going on. They don't know where he's going to kick it. They've mucked that up. But Scott Pendlebury flies. Three Richmond defenders go with him. Then the ball basically falls into Brody Grundy's lap. And then he kind of like munts it off his shit into the goal. Then he was interviewed after the game. And apparently he got a spray from Bucks for being in the wrong position. They didn't even celebrate the win. He was like, Bucks was like, what were you doing? You completely stuffed that up. That's so why won, I think it's they such won a good, by accident. That's why I think it's such a last good play or a good last play because it's like, it's literally who could out mistake. You, you've said this, like this mm. was the game epitomised because it was just a series of mistakes. Like, mm. like lost and handles it out of bounds. No one knows why. Mark Moore kicks it to the top of the goal square. Um, there's a couple of things. So Pendlebury goes up. Richmond can't punch it through because they're only a point up. Oh, no, time. they're five points up. Yeah, it's five Hang points on. up. They're yeah, five they're five points, points up. up. They just need one bloke yeah. to punch yeah, it no, through right. the goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the best thing about this is when Grundy... So Grundy should fly. He doesn't. Mm. But he hasn't flown, so Sean Hampson, his direct opponent, hasn't flown. But if you look at where Hampson stood, he's like, not, he's like two metres not goal side of him. Yeah. Maybe less. So like he's literally broken... Like if you're not on, if you're not flying, you can't be not goal side of your player there. Yeah. And then like, yeah, even the fact that like, when I remember watching this and being like in real time and my initial reaction being like, when Bruce calls like, oh. Sets it up, one mark, hasn't happened, still a chance, is it a goal? It is, the pies are in front, is it Grundy? It's Grundy! And I'm like, why is... Hang on, what? Like, why is Grundy... Like, what? Like, so why is he my, not... Why? That's my lasting memory of this game, is sitting with Jacob Jewson, our absolute Collingwood Nuffy, and me saying, oh, my God, for solos kicked seven. And because I'm just like, it has to be for solo, because why would, why would Brody Grundy be at the bottom of the pack? He surely should be flying. And then he's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's Buddy Grundy. It's Buddy Grundy. And he just goes off his chops for like the next five minutes about how great it is that a ruckman crumbed a ball at the bottom of the pack where he shouldn't have been to beat us and then for both of our teams to do nothing for the rest of the year. It is crazy and ridiculous and haunts me to this day, even though we've won two premierships. Well, that's the only thing now. Now I kind of look at this as like a very important developmental moment. And at the time, I definitely was not looking at it as a... And I suspect Damien Hardwick was also doing a valve. Um, like, I don't know how... 
at the time, just the sheer number of mistakes, I don't know how you would find a positive in this. Like, I, this is like, like a, yeah, it's, it's the fact that you didn't even, they didn't even have to do anything good to beat you. Like, they literally just had to kick it to the top of the goal square, like, and their Ruckman kicks a crumbing goal. Like, they had no fucking idea what was going on and you still managed to fuck it up. Like, so when you look at it like that, I don't, I can kind of understand why this basically killed Richmond's season. I had a couple of outtakes and tidbits. So there's the Fasolo. So this is probably Fasolo's last, like, real, like, Superstar oh my God, this guy's a yeah, like this is—he's a gun because after this he goes to Carlton. There's obviously the mental health stuff that goes on, um, and now he's pretty much lost the game. So like, that's probably one of the only like kind of optimistic reasons to watch this. Like, oh yeah, this is a pretty good for solo performance. Um, my favorite thing or my the thing I miss the most is crowds. So after watching round one, I then went back like a couple of days later and watched this game with a crowd, and I was like. Oh, this is a bit. This is a bit weird. There's, there's people here. They're they're cheering. There's a bit of atmosphere here. Not this, just these silences. So that kind of aged. That's just a strange thing mm-hmm. about the moment that we live in. Um, I had a throwback. So, and it's not even a throwback because I still get a little bit worried when Dylan Grimes starts sprinting. <laughs> so, like, he has those moments in a game where. He just like he'll he'll be in a one on one, and he put, he'll put the afterburners on and grab the ball and kind of run a little arc. And on this night, he does that, and then tweaks one of his hamstrings, and you can see his hamstring go, and you can see him kind of pull up as he's doing a little arc around. I think it's in quarter one, and um, so there's that because I still panic a little bit, like progressively less, but I still remember like watching the 2017 Grand Final and Grimes would start sprinting, and I'd just be like. <gasps> And like exhale every time the hamstring didn't snap. Um, the other thing that, like in terms of like a cameo performer, so we talked about the terrible goal kicking on this night. One of the best kicks in football now is Jaden Short. Mm. So this is his first game, his debut. This is probably the great silver lining for Richmond because they found one, and I think Short nearly played in seventh in the seventeenth flag and is now a pretty gun half back but he kicked 3-1 from six disposals didn't have a handball and then had a first kick first goal moment playing as a like a small forward Mm. so like okay why are we playing this guy as a small forward given he's an elite kick on both feet and very very quick and all the rest but like because our forward was kind of was Tyrone Vickery and no one else well he came in for Daniel Rioli short hmm so Rioli went out injured. Short was the direct replacement. So, yeah, he's kind of like a very interesting, like, cameo on the night. Because you're like, what? Like, short? Debut? What? Playing as a forward? What? Oh, first kick, first goal? Forgot about that. So that's kind of a bit of fun, a bit of fun there. And on the, on so the reverse another, as well, Darcy oh. Moore playing as a forward for Collingwood. That's freaky as hell. And, like, not being... He, and just a reminder of, like... Darcy Moore couldn't take beautiful flying marks as a forward. Mm. It kind of just like reinforces why all of these guys no longer play in the positions they were in on this night when you see them like sputtering it up. Um, so question for you, which ex-combatant do you miss the most? From the players that played on that night, it's really weird, but Jared Blair. 
So I had him as well. So I had Blair and I had Sam Lloyd. And so I think in, maybe in it's a documentary that we saw last year where like you get to know Jared Blair a bit, but just I'm like, he was like a pretty good footballer and like he did some good stuff and he seemed like a nice guy and everyone seemed to like him. And I was like, oh, I miss Jared Blair. But then also this game kind of showed why he doesn't play AFL anymore. Like he wasn't very good that night. No, he's kind of, he because I don't think when he was like 2010 flag, he was quick. No. But... But by this point, he's slowed down by like six years. Mm. So it's gotten worse again. And the other thing, with like, so there is the doco with Jared Blair. And then there's like, oh, you're still a prem-, kind of in like the cloak mold of the sense that like people kind of forget that you were he really was good. a really, really good player in a, re- in a really, really good team. So there's that kind of element. And then there's like just the simple fact he went when he got delisted from Collingwood and went and played VFL at Port Melbourne. Mm. Which, like, you don't see a lot of kind of ex-AFL players old. I'm just going to go play VFL. It's like, what? Go play country footy and make bucket loads of money. So he didn't do that. So, yeah, I kind of came out of this point. Oh, yeah. As much as you said, like, oh, Jared Blair. The other one, from a purely Richmond perspective, is Sam Lloyd. Because I've always kind of liked... Sam Lloyd's just a good footballer. Like, he's the sort of bloke who, like, if he just played country footy, he'd kick six every week and get millions of touches and everyone would love him because he's a nice guy. Mm. Like... I never forget that 2017 year where he couldn't get in the Richmond team, played in the VFL. And he used to just like, they started just playing him as a midfielder because what the hell? And then he just started getting like 40 disposals every week at VFL level as a midfielder. And so I was kind of like, oh, I just really like Sam Lloyd. He went to the Brownlow with Dusty. Cool. So yeah, seeing him was kind of, that was kind of weird. Now he's in a Bulldogs jumper and like plays every game Hmm. in a team that's meant to make the top four. So before we segue into book club, just to wrap up where the teams went from here. So Richmond, this did break them. They lost five on the trot and they only snapped that drought with Sam Lloyd, God bless him, uh, kicking a goal after the siren against the Swans in round eight. The Pies went on to lose to the Saints. They lost to Melbourne. They beat Essendon, who were terrible because of supplements. Uh, They lost to West Coast. And then the real big, big, big one for them was they lost to Carlton in round seven. Um... And so these two teams finished 12th and 13th with uh, Collingwood one win ahead of Richmond. And they both finished miles out the eight. Um, and that's kind of really it. Um, clearly everything that then happens post the halfway point of 2017 is kind of now in folklore. But um, I guess that's probably the final question. And I might almost try and ask you to quantify it. So like, in like the narrative arc of these two clubs, if you're writing the book about, and I know the book's been written, but like if you're writing the book about like the last 10 years of the Richmond Football Club and the last 10 years of the Collingwood Football Club, how important is this individual game? I think this game for me was like the moment as a fan, I kind of gave up. Mm. So it was after a childhood of all the ninth them jokes, getting smashed by Port Adelaide because you picked to get kicked into the wrong breeze, losing to Carlton elimination final because Carlton finished ninth and then you actually made it into the like the fifth, but then they you know Eston happened and then we got kicked out by ten and didn't make finals, and then you lose this game, which is an unlosable game after losing to North the year before an elimination final. And you're just like this, this club's no fun. 
It was like this, I'm going to just follow footy now. I'm going to become an agnostic and just give up and then follow footy. And I feel like that was, that was the, that was the year, that was the game where everyone was like, no, this, we don't want to lose at Collingwood. This used to be our grand final. And then we even lost that. And so I was like, what's the point? This hurts too much. This is silly. And then I feel like there's a collective, well, it was because at the end of 16, there was the coup to try and kick out Peggy. Everyone was trying to get Harper to get fired. And then 17 happened, obviously. So I guess the other thing, and I always think about this in the kind of line of Richmond thinking. It's like if they don't win the flag in 17, like I just... Because I think the fact that they vanquished the demons so quickly after this night was kind of had to happen. Mm. Like Richmond could have gone one of two ways. If they kept fucking around and their new thing became like, guess what? Now we're going to be a club that loses grand finals. Like I really think it's, I'm curious as to how many people would have stuck with it because I, everyone was like, was it a very like wits end kind of area? Now, but say it depends though, because that's that's a very much our experience of Richmond being younger Richmond fans. Because what actually is the case is that even if we made it to the grand final and lost, then it becomes generations before us being like, oh no, this is the Richmond of the eighties, or this is the Richmond of the seventies, or this is the Richmond of the fifties or the forties or whatever. And so, yeah, that would have been fine with it. It just been would have been the youngsters being like, oh, we got we finally get to go to a grand final, and then we got pumped by Adelaide who was strong on us in the grand final because we weren't tough enough. And actually it was the feel good Richmond Tigers that got that flag. So, yeah. Hi, I'm Ben Cousins. It's been 10 years since I've spoken publicly. Is this your last chance? I've stuffed things up royally. I was in between joints, but I do need to find something. I was surprised Ben wanted to reach out to me. Can you tell me 100% you're not using drugs anymore? Um. The most shocking is still to come when Ben Cousins comes clean. So, moving on to Footy Book Club, which, true to previous form, is not actually a book. We love doing this to our listeners. It's actually the Ben Cousins doco coming clean that aired on Channel 7 last night. Now, I watched this this afternoon on uh, playback, and I'm really, really just didn't really know what to make of this. And I know Jared Waitley went on radio and kind of routinely criticised this this afternoon and there's been a lot of talk on Twitter. What was your initial response when you started getting into this? Why was it made? And, like, who is looking after Ben Cousins? That was that was my only two responses. It was like, because mm. half the time I didn't feel like he knew that he was being recorded. Especially in mm. the car, like in the car and in the park, where he's talking to producers and not Baz, he's like totally unhinged and like looks like he's having an episode. And then when he's in the room with Baz, and Baz is trying to ask him all these, you know, in inverted commas, hard hitting questions. Basically, the only question he asks him is like, "Are you taking drugs?" And then Ben Cousins says everything but yes. It's like, why are we doing this? We already know that he is in a terrible place. We already know he went to jail. The only thing I wanted out of this show was the bit that they didn't actually show, which was 
they do the, all the effort to get Wusher to come down and meet up with Ben Cousins. And then they go, they have to see some stuff behind closed doors. Show me that. Show me that. At least that's new. Like, that would be worthwhile mm. seeing or hearing about or being informed about. But no, it's just like, oh, Wusher flew down. They had a chat behind closed doors. Let's have a hit of tennis with Nat Fife. Let's kick to kick in a park with Nick Nat. Like, what? Yeah, this was like, I think it was a bad story told badly. Mm. Or just not a compelling story. And the reason it's not a compelling story, and I thought about this and I was like, I was just kind of thinking, okay, so what, what you've kind of touched on, like what's the point of making this doco? Because like, so 2010, which is just after he finishes at Richmond, they make Such as Life, the doco, mm. and that kind of coincides with his book. And both of those features, I thought at the time had value including the book, because they kind of documented how we got to rock bottom. Mm. And then they're like, okay, but we're at rock bottom. And that's kind of the finale to both of those storylines. So the, the fundamental problem I have watching this is we're nine years on from 2010 and nothing has changed. We're kind of still at rock bottom. So purely in terms of like, what is your rationale for making this? Well, there's not a redemption arc here because we're still at the bottom. There's not any real new information or encounter in this that makes it compelling. So, so like, the really cynical part of me just went, this is clearly Seven need the ratings. Yeah. Ben Cousins needs the paid interview. Um, so Sam, Sam Edmonds tweeted today, um, tweeted today, or I think he told Waitley and then Waitley tweeted it, that this was a paid interview with the money going to Ben Cousins' lawyers, which makes complete sense. Because if you're Ben Cousins, I'd... I don't know really why you'd agree to this. They went really easy on it. But at the same time, I, I didn't come out of it. I didn't really feel anything, to be yeah. perfectly honest. You other than you're not angry at him because he doesn't act like, a, like an idiot. He just is scattered. You're not sorry for him, though, because he doesn't show any remorse or any progression. And you're not informed because it's everything we already know. So it's like it's not even mm. a documentary. It's just a paid interview. And I did some dig, dig, deeper digging. So the executive producer for this is also the executive producer for um, Sunday Tonight, which is like Channel, 10, Channel 7's version of 60 Minutes. He was also a former executive producer of 60 Minutes and he's just renowned for doing this. In my, and this is an opinion now, trash journalism. And so, yeah. Why? I mean, that was kind of my... yeah. Go on. Uh, do you think that he'd ever, that Ben Cousins would ever allow himself to go on open mic? Yes. But I think he would do the same thing he did with Basil here. And just dead that and then so, I'm an his way through. Well, I didn't. So I think if I was Basil working on this, I would have gotten fed up with the project. Because ultimately what happened, and I think Robbo tweeted this, and I thought it was a fairly good observation. You could say what you like about Basil's questions, but at the end of the day, every time he put an open question to Ben Cousins and basically said, explain something to me, he just got nothing. So he ended up just asking a lot of yes and no's and then still struggled to get answers. So like as a journalist, it's kind of like, eh. and I could see Cousins going on open mic and doing the same thing and then open mic having 
some sort of editorial standard, probably not bothering to air it because I just mm. don't think it would be particularly compelling. And this is where the whole, like, what's the point? So the point of such is life. And I remember watching it with my parents was very much that this is the precautionary type. Yeah. Like, this is what can happen. This is what can happen. This is what drug addiction looks like. It changed how that was perceived. Um, but in the intro to this, he's still saying, I hope some good would come from this. I really hope that telling my story will help someone. I'm like, okay, just direct those people to go watch the previous documentary that you made 10 years ago um, and nothing has changed since that yeah. point. Um, and then there's, again, like questions that are trying to harp on that theme. Like, what would you say to someone considering using drugs at a party? It's like, that's all ground that's been done before. Off. Yeah. Like, like we know, like you, the Ben Cousins story has told people why that's, a bad idea. And then, to be honest, like, once you kind of got through the first 20 minutes, the rest of it was just a bit weird. There were two really, the scenes you've mentioned, so the car and the park, which were really concerning, and we'll talk about them in a minute, but then, like, just going to go play tennis with Nat Fife? Like, why didn't Nat Fife choose to be involved in this? And the same yeah. with Nick Nat probably has a little bit more to say in terms of trying to look at some backlog of, I guess, criminal behaviour and how that can stem from... Yeah, your upbringing, background, your, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Like he kind of makes up, but it doesn't, he comes at it with more empathy or has more time to show empathy than Fife, but still doesn't really get anywhere. And I'm kind of just sat there like, okay, why are you guys here? Like, mm. what? Um, and then the bizarro situation where he sends a letter to Lynn McGranger from Home and Away. And I'm kind of sat there and Home and Away is a seven show. And like cynical me is just going... This is so Gabby and I, my partner and I watched the Truman show two nights ago. And I'm like, if this is product placement, it's less subtle than the product placement in the Truman show. Yeah. I'm like, what? Like, you've just decided to write a letter to the Home and Away star. And, and then the, I guess the more egregious part of this that I think really was super disappointing was the fact that his partner, Malia, pretty much gets no airtime at all mm. and certainly not in the first 25 minutes and so the uh, probably the big development in the Ben Cousins story since 2010 is that he's gone to prison twice some of that for stalking um, and for threatening domestic violence so in terms of digging into those experiences and actually representing them from a holistic point of view like they don't really speak to his partner in any detail you get his rant in the car about um, men's rights and men not getting access to their children um, but you don't really get a rounded perspective on it, which I think is like pretty unethical, really. Well, yeah, and I, I'm just going to presume that obviously they've asked her for comment and then she's declined because all the footage of her that they use in the doco is from the Sunday Tonight Show in 2017. Mm. So perhaps she okay. just said, I don't want to be involved in this, but, I, but I'm speculating but then on that state, Then you've got to state that, don't you? Oh, you would think so, but you, if you had ethics, you probably yeah. wouldn't edit this at all. Well, that would be my question, because I think the most concerning part of this, and Jared brought this up on radio, is like there's a scene and there's a bit of a, should be a content warning here, because this is all kind of really dangerous in terms of the ideas, but there's literally a, a scene in the car where he's sitting there and he's talking and he basically says... If I'm that unhinged, I feel this unhinged, I'm just going to go pick a cause. 
And like, given what we know now about massacres and violence, I just kind of find the airing of that, just really thought that that probably shouldn't have gone to air and wouldn't have gone to air. And again, the scene in the park is the other one. And I guess there are questions there over whether he knows that he's being filmed. You can only assume yes, but I think one of the biggest bite backs on Twitter was that for a lot of this, he looked like he wasn't in a headspace where he, yeah. he, he properly like he give in a, consent in a space yeah. where he was, where he was too vulnerable to properly give consent, um, which is an, a problem with a financially incentivized interview for a person who's homeless and addicted mm. to drugs. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing you really walk away from that is you just feel sad and a bit weirded out about the whole thing. Like not just sad for Ben Cousins, you feel sad for Channel 7 for airing it. Like why are they that desperate to fill a Sunday night footballless winter because they have to go exploit a yeah drug abuser? Like you feel sorry for everyone involved. You feel sorry for his parents. You feel sorry for his kids. You feel sorry for his former partner. You can't feel sorry for Baz. Like it's all very odd. But you don't feel sorry for, you mentioned his family, but they're far more built out in such as life because they agreed to participate in that docker. Yeah, yeah. So the people that you should leave this feeling sorry for, I don't think you do. And that's like his partner, um, his kids who are clearly too young to be involved. Um, so his partner who's dealing with a violent, violent ex-partner or his ex-partner who's dealing with a violent ex-partner, his kids who are growing up without a father, his, fa- his parents who have lost a son. And I, I think that side of the story and those people are far more compelling um, and important to telling this in a rounded way than Ben Cousins and they aren't centred. And that's the typical kind of... Typical, not typical, but when you report around domestic violence, that's too often how uh, sympathy is doled out, basically. Mm. Um, and then just like, just some weird stuff. Like there's the questions in the use of Coldplay. There's the use of Whitney Houston. There's the use of Highway to Hell. Like so much of this is like oddly produced. Tone yeah. deaf as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, I just looked at this and I'm just like, okay, yes, I think this is unethical. But like, if I'm looking at this, my like, the part of my brain that just goes, the thing I've just written on the paper for this story is corny as hell. You should delete it is just like lighting up. It's just going bananas. It won't stop beeping. And that was like part of me, the whole doco was like kind of feeling a little bit sick that this was going to air, but then also just being like, what? Like who thought that was a a good idea? It was really hard to watch all of it. I I only watched all of it because I knew we were going to be talking about it on the podcast. That's it. I would have turned it off probably 20 minutes in if I didn't have to watch it. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you messaged me about that and I pretty much, I reckon I watched 40 minutes of it and like really watched it. And then the last like 20 minutes, I was kind of just typing things into the agenda and kind of checking the phone and, you know, all of that stuff that you do when you're not really that engrossed by something. But like, yeah, I honestly just, I was actually pretty close to just, even though we're talking about it, turning it off. Like Mm. if someone was like, should I watch this? I'd be like, no, it's, there's dangerous ideas that I don't think should be aired. Um, it's on an, Jared had a kind of an issue with it being on a 7.30 time slot. I think the issue is really that it was on at all. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just a money exercise, and that's the only thing that my head could use or arrive at to explain the whole thing. So yeah, if I, to our listeners, I hope that this uh, conversation means you don't go out and immediately want to watch it because I don't actually think you'll get through it. So using my exec, own executive producer head, the show that you could have aired instead, in my opinion, would be, and you, and you leverage off that idea that Woosh has gone and met up with Ben Cousins for the first time in 10 years since this is all broken down, probably longer, probably 15 years or whatever. And then you basically send him to rehab and film it. Is now there's probably ethics around that, but it has to be a solo. And there'll be a lot of a lot of ethics around that. You have to try and work out. But you use people from his life, so you use that conversation with Wusher, and it's a reconnection of a coach going to the star player because you have that father son kind of uh, that kind of father son uh, relationship that's built as opposed to just become because of coincidence of birth. And so then the reconnection of that, hopefully the reconnection of his own father on the back of that as well hopefully the reconnection of him being a father to his kids and you show that journey, you know, I suppose it would have to be a reality TV setting. And so if that was possible, ethical, people could consent to it, great. But that's the next stage of that journey is him coming out of the bottom and coming up again and then showing that it is possible, hopefully. Otherwise, don't show it. Because all you showed, all you really confirmed with that version of this coming clean is A, that he's most likely not clean and B that sometimes you can't beat it. We don't want to sell that story. Yeah. Like that was my, if I had one overriding outtake, it was come back to the Ben Cousins story when there's some sort of change in the pattern. Mm. And then you've actually got something to, to report as opposed to making yeah, 60 minutes of 60 minutes, believe it or not. Yeah. So, future episodes of the pod, we are going to start doing this every single Monday. We've got plenty of footy books that we're going to be teeing up. In the meantime, if you have recommendations for classic games you would like to cover off, we are searching for one every round. Next week on the agenda is the 2004 Essendon versus West Coast game where James Hurd slots the winning goal from the pocket and hugs the supporter in the dying seconds before the supplement saga. It's epic. It's going to be great. Really looking forward to it. Um, we're still to come up with a game for the unwatchables so if you have any suggestions there please do and we'll keep you posted on books Uh, if you want to get in touch follow Sporting Chance Media on socials stay inside stay in lockdown stop the spread and enjoy however you're choosing to pass your time in quarantine